Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 101. This interview is with David Matten, head of trends and insights at trendwatching.com. Trendwatching is an independent trend firm based out of London with an impressive network of trend spotters around the world. Trendwatching evaluates consumer trends and provides a freemium service with paying services such as their latest trend reports, a trend framework, and their innovation database. Given my association with NetExplorer Observatory, I was eager to get to know more about trend watching and their slant on what's going on in consumer trends. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Minter Dialogue today via Skype, although we're in the same lovely town, London. I have David Matson. So, David, tell us who you are, what you do, and how do you describe your mindset? Hi there. So, um, I'm head of Trends and Insights at TrendWatching.com, which is um, a global consumer trend-watching firm. Um, so we're just extremely observant, really, about what's happening in the consumer arena, and we report on that in free publications and to our premium clients. And as for my mindset, I'd have to say that it is curious. Probably a good place to be in. So yes. uh, you, these trends, um, how do you try to categorize the trends? I mean, how do you structure an approach looking at trends from the consumer's point of view? Yeah, well, fundamentally, our structure is that we have... Um, uh, 16 megatrends that kind of encapsulate our view of the consumer arena. And they're the kind of big, broad, sort of slower-moving directions of travel that we see in the consumer arena. And inside those 16 megatrends, we fit our trends. So we have a framework of around 100 trends in our database that fit into that megatrend framework. So, And just to give you an example, you know, a megatrend could be something like Ubitech, which is the sort of endless consumer thirst for new technologies, or it could be local love, which is the kind of forever engagement and love for your physical kind of location and surroundings. All right, so then these mega trends are not stuck in stone. They will be evolving over time then. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, the mega trend framework is relatively new for us. It was, you know, because exactly to your question, we felt we needed more of a structure uh, to give kind of clients more of a handle on our trend framework, our framework of 100 trends. So the mega trend framework is slower moving because these are bigger, broader ideas. But yes, of course, over time, they will too evolve, you know, because c- consumer engagement with technology say, is, is always going to be changing over time. Consumer engagement with the physical surroundings is going to change over the over time. So we will update it as we see those changes. Yeah, not not to mention, I would say, uh, you, you say the physical surrounding, I was going to say the in, invisible surrounding, as in the NSA and other kind of fun things. Right, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So um, we're talking about trend watching. Um, you've got offices around the world. Can you tell us about how big your organization is and so we understand a little bit the, uh, and also your trend spotters, because that's pretty impressive. Of course, yeah. So um, I guess our base is in London, it's fair to say, and we're around 20 people in London. Um, But we also have offices in Sao Paulo. So we have a small team there of five or six. We have an office in Asia Pacific that I think is 
currently three. And we have also kind of trend analysts in Lagos and one in New York. Um, but we're really powered, as you say, by a much bigger network. And we call that a happy spotting network. That's a network of thousands of mostly kind of young, very switched on, often media people who send us examples of the latest, most innovative you know, what we call consumer-facing innovation, so products, services, campaigns from their area. So we're constantly in receipt of this influx of data from our happy spotting network, and we in London are trying to kind of join the dots between the, the examples they're sending us and draw out the new directions of travel. So how do you recruit these happy spotters? Well, simply, we have a we have a web platform, happyspotting.com. Um, you can sign up there, and if we, you know... You have to tell us a bit about yourself and if we think you, you know, you're suitable and it looks likely that you're going to be an engaged member of the network, then you know, you're up and running. Uh, and I, but I guess more, you know, more broadly, the way we will draw people's eyes to, to the Happy Spotting website is that you know, we have a freemium business model. So we publish a lot of free content. We have a, a very like sort of a 250,000 sort of uh, email subscriber list. So we get lots of eyeballs on what we do and some of those people think you know i love this so much this is so cool that i want to be a part of it and they become happy spotters and so they're not remunerated but their work per se is recognized yeah they i mean they're not paid but they are actually rewarded we kind of we have a sort of back end to the happy spotting website you know where you uh, submit your spottings and you accrue points when your spotting is accepted you build up to a certain amount of points and then you can cash those points in for something like an ipad or amazon vouchers or that kind of thing i love it yeah so, uh, so there's a reward element that's cool and um and on the front end if you will is with the the customers so talk talk us through the premium model what kind of expenses are we talking about for and what type of companies are you are the best or, or at least who who are your clients yeah so so as i said we have a kind of 250,000 member um, subscriber list for our free content, out of which we carve, you know, what is inevitably a small sliver to be our premium clients. And they, I mean, our interests range right across the consumer arena. And our client list, which I have to say is is pretty awesome and pretty humbling uh, list to, to know that you're writing for. But our client list, you know, ranges from everyone from sort of Google YouTube, Facebook, to Hilton Hotels, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, um, L'Oreal, uh, kind of you name it. They, they are a client or they've been a client, you know, a host of airlines. Uh, but our price point is such, you know, because buying a standard premium account with us is around $2,000. Um, so our price point is such that, we, you know, we also count among our clients many just kind of small you know, agencies of five people in Germany uh, who are who, who, who are a, a kind of small marketing consultancy or a small chain of pizza restaurants in, in, in you know, Spain or whatever. Uh, we have numerous clients who, you know, we don't have hands-on contact with. We don't really know who they are. They've just bought us and they love our content. And so... Um... If, I, if I'm a large uh, company, uh, Procter & Gamble, I, I, I take a subscription. Is that one subscription for the entire company? How does that work? Well, yeah. So we have a kind of – we have a tiered system where a standard account means one primary user who can share his login with 
four other users. Then we have a kind of medium-sized account if you're a team of 20. Then we have what we call trend-watching enterprise. So if you're a big company and you want kind of global access or even you know, national access for, for hundreds or thousands of staff, then obviously you're into the realms of a kind of bespoke quote and we will bundle in with that maybe kind of presentations from our analysts and workshops and things like that. Mm. Then, yeah, you're, then, then, you're, then you're in a different kind of uh, relationship with us if you're a big company and you want thousands of people looking at what we do. And we do that for, you know, Telefonica. We do that for Universal. I think with a couple of the en- enterprise companies, you know, we're kind of built into their intranet. So when you log on to the company website, you know, there's a little trend-watching box. We're always there because... That because people in the company have decided they want everyone, or at least everyone in, say, the marketing division, to have access to what we do. That's brilliant. And as you know, I'm, I'm involved with NetExplo, so I, it all speaks to me in volumes. Um, right. <laughs> so, David, uh, it's such a tra- changing world. And, and we, so I really think that you, and like me, really are interested in one of the most fascinating components of the world. These trends... How do you describe them? And two, to what extent are they intimately related to technology? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny world we're in, a funny business we're in, if we're talking about me and you, because what is a trend is sort of one of the defining questions. And it's not always one that people find, you know, the easiest to, to answer. To my mind, the trend, the way I would describe a trend is trying to keep it simple, you know, a newly emerging behavior, a newly emerging mindset among a group of consumers. So a kind of a new direction of travel among some subset of consumers out there. And, you know, one that we suspect may become more important over time. I think those, you know, those are the kind of elements for me that make up a trend. It has to be new. It has to be something in the end that people are doing, right? People drive trends. And it has to be something that we think is going to become more important over time. Those are the three things for me that sort of um, constitute a trend. Now, as I say, our interests uh, range sorry, very broadly over the consumer arena. So lots of what we look at is not around technology, but inevitably, you know, if you had to single out, if you had to absolutely, were absolutely forced to single I'd out. i pin you down. It's driving you know, changing people's lives right now, you'd probably pick technology. So technology informs a lot of of what we talk about. All right. So if we look at at your broad trends and and even, you know, all the trends you've looked at, how would you describe the, the, let's say, one or two biggest trends that you feel are the most important? So if we're talking kind of... um, if we're talking at a level kind of, say, somewhat above the, the kind of specific trends we identify, mm-hmm. I mean, one of, the, one, of the kind of, one of the kind of uber trends, if you like, around technology at the moment that I see, that I talk about a lot, is this kind of blurring of the boundaries between the online, you know, the digital space and the physical space. And in particular, the kind of transposition of consumer expectation um, from online to offline. So what I mean by that is that consumers are increasingly expecting, they, they, have, this, they have this new world of, of expectation that has been cultivated online of sort of flexibility, complete transparency, the ability to create, the ability to share in an instant. And they are now bringing those expectations to the physical world. And that is a very important and also, I think, a pretty scary thing 
if you are trying to serve, you know, these human beings in the in, in the real world, in, in offline space, because they now have a whole set of expectations of higher expectations than they had before. Yeah, well, in some cases they're higher, but in other cases they're different. They're, you know, it's faster, it's more transparent. Right. It's not necessarily bigger, but just on different spaces that we didn't really think about before. Right, exactly. I mean, it's having all kinds of really, you know, really, really interesting consequences. So, I mean, just to pick out one, a trend that springs to mind that I've talked a bit about recently, uh, is one from our 2014 trend report called Instant Makers. Um, and that's all about taking, that's all about instant creation of a physical product in a retail space. So, and really what we've said is driving that is this, you know, we're very accustomed now to this idea that online you can customize your product, you can create it, you can co-create it if we have to use the sort of somewhat <laughs> worn out parlance now, right, of this sort of thing. You can co-create. Uh, consumers expect now to, to, to be able to do that in physical retail, retail spaces. And so we saw some, some really nice examples of that in London in uh, kind of late or sort of summer, late 2013, you know, a pop-up store opened just around the corner actually from, uh, from the office where you could kind of, it was, it was simply just kind of banks of huge digital kind of touch screens and you would go in there and design your own T-shirt. Um, you know, that's not so new, but what was new was that in an instant now it would be printed for you with the design on it, you know, and that's a really cool example of what we're calling instant makers. Yeah, in the, I mean, there's 3D printing. I was thinking of um, there's there's the whole trend of, of getting your customized shoes. And of the three big ones out there, without really wanting to slash them, there's one that uh, promises you can get your instant shoe in something like uh, more or less three to four weeks. There's another one that says, no, 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 we're much quicker. We can do your shoe in in uh, under a week and then there's another one that says well if you can come back in an hour we'll get it for you right yeah and isn't that a kind of um interesting sign of the way you know these things are are going i mean yeah. incredible massive yeah, but, uh, that brings to mind for me an except an instant makers example that um that i talked about a bit in a in a couple of presentations and this is actually an interesting one because it's not a product yet it's just a it's just a kind of prototype but this is a this is a shoe that's kind of equipped with sensors, and kind of the, the the customer goes for a run on a treadmill in those shoes, and a ton of data about how they run and the shape of their foot and their, their gait and so on is is sort of synced to a plat an online platform. That online platform will then immediately design for them the ideal pair, you know, the ideal personalized pair of shoes for their foot and for their running style. And th that pair of trainers will be 3D printed in the store. I mean, it's a prototype right now, but the, the people behind it have serious intentions to roll it out to sports stores. And they're in some talks with some big names, I think, in 2015. And so that's really where I see kind of instant makers going, you know, this kind of really interesting marrying together of personalization and, and, and kind of uh, immediate satisfaction of desire for a new product. So going back to the, the idea of the transposition of what's going on online it has an impact on the way my expectations are offline in particular, but I mean, maybe you'll have other ones. Do you, how do you see these trends being different around the world? Or is there just, you know, every, it's all universal? I mean... Yeah, I think 
these trends these trends will play out somewhat differently around the world. And what's of particular interest to me right now is that oh, I think we know that Asia Pacific, you know, Asian consumers are really leading the way in the embrace of a lot of this. So smartphone penetration, smartphone culture, embrace of digital culture um, in Asia is in many cases ahead of what we see in Europe and in North America. You know, and then I think it's probably, I mean, the, the you know, I'm not the absolute expert on, on kind of Latin America. You know, we have great people out there. But what I hear from them is that over there, you know, they're, they're, on, they're kind of on the way to the embrace of it. But the embrace yet is not quite yet so intense, right, as we find here in Europe. Mm. Well, then you, then you have Africa with more the the feature phone right. being innovative around that. Exactly, exactly. I mean, what's happening, I mean, that kind of innovation around the feature phone and kind of mobile in Africa is just absolutely transformative. You know, when you think of kind of new access to financial services and new access to, to health information, I mean, yes, of course, they're sort of, they're somewhat behind in inverted commas in terms of embrace of the latest technology, but in terms of the, the kind of pace of transformation, it's, it's epic and it's, it's hugely exciting. Well, realizing you can't talk about the project, about the shoes, because uh, that's ahead of its time, if you will, uh, can you cite any, anything, any particular activities or initiatives that you have really said, wow, that's really cool, out in Asia or in Africa or even in, in Laz or anywhere else? Any, it's always great to have specific ideas you might have spotted. Well, I think um, what it, what really interests me in Asia at the moment is the kind of pace of innovation that we see in messaging apps. Oh, yeah. um, you know, if you look at sort of WeChat and Line uh, and uh, kind of Weibo uh, and the way those messaging apps are becoming, well, number one, they're leading the way, they're leading the world, and Asian consumers are leading the world in embrace of, you know, new forms of digital communication, mobile communication. And if you look at what's happening with those messaging apps, they're becoming way more than messaging apps. They're becoming, you know, online stores, online kind of doctors, online payment mechanisms, you know, online content providers, uh, it, it, there's just this huge welter of innovation going around, going on around messaging apps over in Asia right now. But then we're hit with the news just last month, right? That the, um, the Chinese central government has decided that it's going to suspend kind of some forms of smartphone payment. So you can't pay via QR code anymore and you're not allowed at the moment to have virtual credit cards. And that's kind of put the, that's kind of put uh, WeChat um, on the back foot because that was fundamental to some of its plans for, mm -hmm. the, for the next while was to become a key financial services provider. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting to see how uh, regulatory change can you know, can affect things, or is always an unknown factor. You know, no one's expecting this, but I think the, the I think the view is that it's temporary. Well, yeah, I, I happened to work with Tencent last year. Aha, uh -huh, right. So I'm fairly familiar with all that. But the what what um, it brings up is you know when we're looking at the way new technologies are impacting society and individuals that are using them, 
it's sort of inextricably linked to the way the governments and regulatory bodies are allowing them and then retroactively trying to refit them. And whether it's net neutrality or copyright law or privacy concerns or just governmental oversee, that it seems to be that, that, you know, that that's intricately related to the way that the trends are playing out. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, all, all of those things feed into... Um, yeah, feed into the evolution and the sort of velocity of of, of the trends we track. Uh, I mean, and yeah, I mean, I, another one that you just drew out. I mean, privacy is obviously a privacy around technology and around a lot of what I talk about around technology is absolutely key. Um, and I mean, we're in the midst of. I mean, the pieces of the puzzle are somewhat up in the air at the moment when it comes to where we're at with regulation around data privacy and consumer attitudes to data privacy. So, I mean, I'm constantly asked what's going to happen next, what's going to be the case next year, you know, what will people, what is people's attitude to privacy going to be? I mean, it's impossible to gaze into the crystal ball um, for that one, but it's a, it's, it's a super interesting space. Well, and, and we can be, there is part of it that we can delve into, which is where do you see the people's appreciation of privacy having the most impact on what's happening in terms of trends? So, I, you know, is it France with the CNIL and the, or Europe with its governing body, the American vision of privacy, if you take Zuckerberg, or a green... Um, uh, gosh, the guy in Berlin, um, you know, will the NSA the European version of it or the Chinese version of privacy. Do you see any of where do you see any, you know, maybe initiatives or trends happening that are coming from a viewpoint with regard to privacy that's more different than others? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I think that the kind of privacy Armageddon for the majority of consumers is is yet to arrive. I still don't think we've had the event that causes your average, again in inverted commas, um, consumer to take pause and really think about the amount of data and the nature of the data that they are kind of passively sharing and that one day may... Uh, may sort of reappear in their lives in unexpected ways. I think perhaps when a kind of, you know, huge email provider is hacked or a huge social network is hacked and an absolute ton of consumer data is kind of uh, acquired by people with um, malign intentions and made searchable online, so made so that anyone online can search it, and find, you know, data of their friends, data of family. That is the time when most consumers are going to realise the kind of new data world they're in. And then I suspect that the point of coming to a question, you know, the point of view of a kind of a Zuckerberg or a, or a data libertarian, if you like, will start to seem less kind of benign or less attractive than it does at the moment to consumers. And I think we probably will see uh, some regulation around this and some kind of, yeah, just some tighter controls about the way it all works. Yeah. Well, when the demand is there. Yeah, there's definitely a, a, a feeling of it's still not me. I mean, if you take the Heartbleed uh, incursion, there's a number of people I've talked to. Have you changed all your 
um, your your passwords, and and majority of people said, no, no, it's not going to affect me. I'm too small for that. Right. Exactly. I think that's I think that's exactly it. You know, I think when it comes to the NSA revelations. You know, lots of people are interested. They understand on an intellectual level that this is a bad thing, um, but they're not personally engaged. They still don't think, you know, this one day, every email I've ever written may be online and searchable. um, and, And what does that world look like? And I think that's simply because it's too terrible a thought for most people, and I can kind of count myself among this for, for, for most of the time, right? I don't go around acting as though all the digital data, all the data that I spin off may one day be online and be searchable. We're just kind of enmeshed now in this world where we're share, passively sharing all this data, and we kind of don't really want to think about what that means, you know, in the long term. Uh, but I think at some point we're going to be forced to confront what it means. Hmm. I think. I mean, who knows, right? Maybe we won't. But hmm. it's it's impossible. It's hard for me to imagine that that at some point in the future this won't happen. There won't be some event that really does make people think again. Yeah, I'm just grappling with the name of that author who lives in London. He's half American, half English. Uh, Dr. Kalkam is that name, but he has that book that talks about um, the uh, burning, burning man and this, this world where everyone's being watched. And there's that sort of... Uh, uh-huh. uh, do you know the book I'm talking about? Uh, I don't... All right. Well, it, it just talks about this whole notion that, you know, if you get XO'd, where, which, which is a term which the book talks about, um, and hopefully the name's going to pop into my mind at that beautiful moment, um, where you all your data becomes public domain, and that's led by anonymous and other malign uh, organizations. They're not that anonymous is malign, but other organizations which happen to be malign, right? And, and uh, they exo certain individuals, and of course that brings out lots of dirty laundry, and that can be an awfully frightening experience. David, um, talking about um, innovation as you do in these trends to uh, companies and clients. Mm-hmm. How do you see companies uh, uh, ingurgitating all this information and, and, and where, where do you see the pain points and the, 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 maybe the nice parts of bringing trends into companies? Yeah, it, very interesting question. I mean, I think one of the, you know, to start one of the pain points is if you're talking about larger organizations, Often the people who are the first point of contact with us, who who essentially are the people who buy the account, have a struggle persuading the people at the very top, you know, the boardroom, that trends are something they should be interested in. You know, I mean, there's still, I mean, for me and you, it's kind of a, a, a picture that's maybe hard to imagine, but there are still plenty of very senior executives out there who who struggle to see the value in a more kind of qualitative kind of cultural insight, you know, technology insight uh, view of consumer change. Uh, so that's one of, the key, one of the key issues is to really engage the people at the very top. Um, if you can do that, then, of course, if you're, again, a large organization, one of the key challenges is, is then to, to sort of disseminate this information throughout your organization. And that's where we start to find that things like workshops, you know, speaking, more hands-on contact really does become super valuable for, for, for our kind of cheerleaders within an organization who want to bring us to, 
to their colleagues. Uh, and then we have a series of tools, you know, con essentially content, but tools, you know, a trend canvas, a trend radar that we hope, and well, I think I'm better say we're pretty sure, does help our clients kind of prioritize the trends that we give them and think intelligently about how to move from that trend to, to you know, actionable innovation. In, in order to get these trends and, you know, what the implications for into business, to what extent do you think that a senior CEO, C-suite, actually needs to be playing with the tools? Or is it, you know, can you get it intellectually? I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't think that, you know, the CEO of Universal needs to be using our, using our content sort of day to day and using our tools in order that his organization lives and breathes it. But someone pretty senior does have to be a cheerleader for us, as I say, and really understand what we do and understand the value in what we do. You know, and again, we're always trying to say to clients, we're not kind of crystal ball gazers. We're not, we're not futurists. Um, we don't know what the next, you know, Facebook is going to be. This is something, you know, a lot of clients <laughs> ask us. What we are is super observant about the consumer arena as it is, you know, today, right now. So a lot of the examples of consumer-facing innovations we're going to give you are very, very new, you know, the last few months. Um, but we're also going to try to give you a methodology so that you can become super observant. You can open your eyes to what's happening in the consumer arena now, and then you can take that information and really kind of shape it into something that is actionable for you. Those are the key things. So we want you to become your own trend watcher. And, and for that to happen, there, has, there does have to be genuine engagement and genuine belief. You know, but, but luckily enough, uh, we, often, we find that's the case. You know, clients are engaged by our content. They see the value in what, we can, what we're doing. And they do want to kind of push that message out through, through their organization. Totally cool. Um, you guys have a, uh, a strong social media presence. How, uh, with uh, trend watching, with um, yes. your Facebook and Twitter, what, what are the types of posts that work the best? When you, do you have any idea what are the things that uh, grab people's attention the most, where they react to them the most? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we've worked, I think we're learning from the masters on that front, right? BuzzFeed and Upworthy, <laughs> who, who um, invest a lot of time and effort in, in true analysis, finally, of, of, of what is shareable. You know, I mean, I find that fascinating. They're developing a science, really, of what is shareable online. And, you know, it turns out that, certainly I can tell you, you know, for tweets, being very concrete and either giving someone something very, giving your reader something very concrete anyway, or being very concrete about what, they're going to get if they follow the link is 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 one of the key characteristics of a very shareable tweet. So to boil that down to, to specifics, you know, Twitter loves statistics. It loves it loves a statistic from one of our free briefings. They get shared uh, very kind of enthusiastically. And then if we can be as concrete as possible about our, our trend briefings, you know, so a really kind of sum up in a line what you're going to get if you visit this page, we find that gets shared a lot too. And I, I mean, I kind of big social media presence is a function of our, of the free content that we produce and our big, you know, list of free readers. 
That's cool. All right. And so, uh, last two more questions for you, Dave. First is um, for you, <laughs> since I mean, you have your trend spotters, but I, do you have any uh, go to sources that are your inspiration that keep you? Uh, who's the inside track if we wanted to, to know the best, the best places to go and find out what's going on in new tech around the world? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of the sources I read day to day are ones that everyone's going to be aware of. I mean, I love Fast Company. I love PSFK. You know, those kinds of sources are handy. But um, I'm a big fan of the, well, the now kind of uh, investor, Mark Andreessen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, who, who, I mean, as I'm sure you know, you know, kind of saw several uh, online trends very early probably kind of too early for his own good right. uh, in, a, in a couple of cases. You know, essentially built the first internet browser, uh, built the kind of first sort of nascent sort of social network, I think it's fair to say, um, and has just con- constantly, to, I mean, in a pretty amazing way, been ahead of the curve when it comes to digital culture and the way technology is changing people's lives. And his big mantra now, again, as I'm sure you know, is, you know, software will eat the world. Mm -hmm. So he is looking towards the kind of radical transformation of huge industries like education Mm -hmm. and healthcare via software. Uh, And he's, he's telling us, you know, what we've seen so far is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the way software, the way code is going to reimagine the economy and reimagine people's lives and i find that very exciting and i mean you know is he a top secret source not really he's pretty well known but he's he's just that bit more kind of off the beaten track than the huge publications you know the tech crunch the, the fast company i mean the harvard business review is obviously great for for kind of strategy and branding mm. i i mean I, it's interesting because i think this is what we're talking about is curation right so that if someone listens to this, they're going to go and hopefully then they'll maybe be more focused on PSFK, Fast Company, and uh, Mark Anderson. And, you know, even within the TechCrunch, though, there's some journalists or writers who are a little bit more interesting than others. And because they produce such a lot of material, we end up having to find out, you know, and, and shrink and narrow down our sources in order so that in our little time that we have, we get yeah, the best, the fastest upstream so right, we're there. This is it. It's just the ocean of content, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 the absolute tsunami, if I can use that word, of content that we're faced with on a daily basis. I tell you, the, 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 new, the new, relatively new publication I'm currently in love with as well is Quartz. Quartz? Yeah. I don't, Quartz. I don't know them. I, kind of, they're, they're, oh, I mean, if you haven't seen them, check them out there. They're kind of an online offshoot of the Atlantic magazine in the US. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And they have been around for about a year now, and they're doing very, very well. You know, they've got a great readership uh, in a relatively short space of time. They're completely purposed around mobile, so it's a, it's a kind of tablet and phone-centric design. So they're winning a lot of plaudits sort of from journalists about, you know, what does what a magazine, what does content look like in the, in the mobile age? But also they're... Their, um, their business, I mean, they're, they're a business publication. You know, their, their articles are very insightful, often give you a very interesting new angle on a big story or bring to your attention a story that you didn't know you should know about, but you really should know about. Uh, so, yeah, I'd I, I thoroughly recommend them. That's cool. Well, I got one thing for me. Um, I just remembered, already studied, it's not true. I, I used Google behind the scenes there to figure out who that... Uh, American, um, English, uh, maybe Canadian, I don't know, Cory Doctorow. 
Ah, right. Yes, I have heard of him. Yeah, and the book was Homeland. Right. Okay. Not one I've read, but I'll, I'll endeavour to do so yeah, now. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, all right, David. So, how can people track you down, follow you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Well, simply visit um, trendwatching.com. Um, and once you're on our front page, it's a very short journey to, you know, finding my page and being able to drop me a line. Um, but, you know, if anyone is desperate to do so immediately, it's simply david at trendwatching.com. And you can find me on Twitter. My handle is simply dmatin. Brilliant. David, thanks for being on board. I'm looking forward to uh, pursuing our relationship and uh, keep on in tabs of what's going on at Trendwatching. Likewise. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a really, really great conversation. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Internet Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please rate it in iTunes, and don't forget to click the handy Facebook like button or to tweet it out. In the meantime, please come join the conversation at The Mindset, or catch me on Twitter at M-D-I-A-L. Happy trails. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.